hate violence. We hate hatred. We hate killing. So I laugh today because the end was beautiful. But before beauty, I have faced ugly days and ugly nights. Believe me. From the Oslo Forum, welcome to the Mediator Studio, a podcast about peacemakers, bringing you stories from behind the scenes. I'm your host, Adam Cooper. My guest today was once called a spoilt child by Nelson Mandela, but 20 years later went on to help mediate a landmark agreement in Sudan that paved the way for democracy. Mohamed El Hassan Labat, Principal Strategic Advisor of the African Union and Special AU Envoy to Sudan, welcome to the Mediator Studio. Thank you. You've gone from being a revolutionary Maoist in your teenage years to serving as Foreign Minister of Mauritania to a long career mediating conflicts across Africa. Uh, but to start with, I'd like to focus on Sudan and take you back to the 19th of April just last year. Because after 30 years of authoritarian rule and months of mass protest, there's a coup against President Omar al-Bashir. And he's replaced by a transitional military council, or TMC. But the protests continue on the streets. And you arrive 10 days after the coup on a fact-finding mission for the African Union, the AU. Tell me about your arrival in Khartoum. You know, what was the situation like and, and what did you do? Of course, everything that we saw since the first minute we landed was showing that the extreme tension was prevailing in the country. From the few members of uh, the protocols who received us, there were no people at all. People were afraid. The airport was quite empty. And when we drove to our hotel, the streets where we were crossing were completely empty. It was like, uh, you know, a hell. We as a Muslim, we describe the hell, uh, the hell as, as an empty, completely an empty existence. But because all the people, by millions of people, were gathered in the other major streets around the general commander of the army. So the situation was quite awful in the city Khartoum. So I arrived with the chairperson of the African Union Commission and immediately we started a series, very huge, extensive contacts with all actors, military, political, social, trade union, business people. We spent two days without any interruptions day and night meeting them. And we left on the 24 to Cairo, where President Sisi convenes a meeting on Libya and Sudan. And that is another story. And, you know, early on, the African Union was suspected by some of not being a friend of the revolution. You know, how do you think the two sides, particularly the protesters that you refer to, saw you? There were three factors which were raised against African Union in Sudan. Number one is that the youth who were the major force in the revolutions were saying that African Union is a trade union of head of state, solidarity between them, 
supporting each one among them, but all of them are against the people in Africa. So they say during 30 years of dictator, Islamic dictatorship, you never rose your finger against this supporting us. So we don't believe in you and we don't trust you. That is number one. Number two, among your leadership, the commission, there is a lady who is the commissioner of social affairs who was among the leadership of the Islamic party. This is a second reason that we can't believe you. And thirdly, many delegations and commissions who were dealing with our country in Darfur, in Nile, Blue Nile, and Kordofan, they were rather near to the regime, the former regime, than to the people. So all these factors make them very suspicious toward me at the beginning. I can tell you that it was a hard work to let them know who I am and in which spirit I am coming. And finally, I think they discover who I am and what I can do with them. And then a real love story was built between themselves and I. That is, this telling love story is the matter of the book I published recently on them. And, and this experience. So there you are in Khartoum, and just as you're about to begin your work in earnest, on the 3rd of June, uh, the Sudanese security forces open fire against a group of protesters in Khartoum and killing more than 100 people. Where were you when you heard that awful news? So I left Khartoum on the 29th May to attend the summit of Islamic cooperation in Mecca with the chairperson of the African Union, where we met Burhan, who was the head of uh, the military, uh, transitional military uh, council. And I left. So you were out of the country at the yeah, time? Yeah, I, I was out of the country. I left Jeddah to Paris on my way to Mauritania. And when I arrived on the 4th in the morning, my telephone was full of messages sent by the chairperson of the African Union Commission, whom I left in Mecca telling me, wherever you are, come back from. Fire is burning in Khartoum. And when you arrive there uh, and, you know, the military are threatening to govern the country themselves without sharing power, what did you do? So uh, military said, we finish with the, the, the dialogue and the negotiation with uh, the other camp. We are going to uh, appoint a transitional government ourselves. And we will organize elections in nine months, and we will lead the country. But in the other hand, the revolutionary camp have decided also to cut all contact with the military, accusing him by assassinating people, betraying the revolution, continuing the dictator regime, etc., etc. And they also, in somehow, have decided to take their own unilateral options. When I arrived from Paris on my, on my return, uh, I entered in middle night to the general commandment of the army. And I met Burhan, the head of uh, the military, uh, transitional military uh, council who led the country after the ousting of uh, Mr. Bashir, who was leading the country for 30 years. 
So I enter in Israel and we have had very, 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 very clear, sincere, and very tough discussion. So I told him three things. You have decided to negotiate with uh, freedom change. You have accepted him as your major vis-a-vis. If you reject that, you will destroy what is the most important for a military. Have you read Lao Tzu, the Chinese wise man? He didn't respond. Lao Tzu said that the most efficient weapon that Saudi has is honor. So if you reject the the continuation of dialogue, of negotiation with the revolutionary camp, you will dishonor the army. And an army dishonored can never be victorious. And that is Lao Tzu who say that. He listened to me very carefully on what I reported from uh, what Lao Tzu said or, or, or what I remember of uh, my, my reading <laughs> in it. The second argument that I used, you know that the unilateral options uh, will have a very, very high price because you cannot reach the result peacefully. You will face the revolutionary in the whole cities and you will face urban guerrilla. So many of the revolutionaries will die, but also you may lose some forces. And thirdly, your plane, your tank, your heavy weapon, you cannot use them in the cities. So what will you use? You will use only the rapid force. So you are exposing this component of your uh, defense and security system to more lack of popularity. So you, you, it is not wise. You will divide your defense and security forces. So he listened to me. The man was extremely calm. And at the end, he told me, yes, indeed, the price will be high. So, Professor, what are you suggesting? I said, give me 10 days. I will go to the other part. If they accept to resume talk with you, you will not have reason to not accept it because we will bring a solution for a peaceful solution for your country. If I don't bring them to the table, I will not have any reason to stay. I will leave the full day. He told me, not 10 days, but take one week. I said, I take what you give me. And I gave him my hand. And it was a very, very tense moment between us. So I left him with his agreement that they will suspend their decision for the unilateral uh, option until I find a result with the other camp. So you have that week that the head of the military gives you to try to get the talks restarted. I'm curious at an emotional level, you know, having seen the aftermath of so many people killed, you know, what was your personal reaction to that? Of course, as at a professional level, as a mediator, you had to find a way forward between both sides. But, you know, seeing that kind of uh, suffering, how did it make you feel? You know, I am coming from a field in Mauritania. We have, sorry to say that, we have the aristocracy is composed by two kinds. Those who take their nobility from a gun. And I am not coming from that uh, kind of nobility in Mauritania. But there is the second uh, uh, kind. You are noble if you master very well. Pencil, book, and soul. I am coming from that. And we 
hate violence. We hate hatred. We hate killing. So anyway, where you will meet death people, avoid that way. So I was suffering and I didn't know on the 6th when I entered in the office of the military hierarchy who may have died among those people I have met. I met before the 3 June. I was for 45 days. I, I met dozens of young women, young people, trade unionists, militants, politically, etc. Maybe I was... I, I, I was I, I couldn't exclude that maybe some of those I met have died because they were in the gathering. So yes, I am not dancing nor singing those days, believe me. That is when my daughter saw me in the TV. She thought that I got cancer or something because I lost a lot of weight. <laughs> so I laugh today because the end was beautiful. But before beauty, they were, I have faced ugly days and ugly nights. Believe me. And I understand that, you know, that level of suffering was so great that, you know, in some of the meetings, it, it even became quite emotional at points. Yes. You know, if you want really to mediate between parties or facilitate agreements, if you are not sincere, if you are not really humanitarian, you cannot reach anything. You know, the day I cried, my tears were more eloquent than my speech. Because emotions is your humanity, is your sense of human life. It is your understanding of the depth of our spirit and soul. So if you have not you don't have emotion and feeling sentiment toward people. You are not a human being and you cannot influence those who are listening to you. And that humanity, you would say, is an essential part of being a mediator. Absolutely. 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 Let's look ahead, Professor, to how the negotiations progressed because, you know, by the middle of June there's a formula for power sharing which is on the table where the military and civilians would both be represented in a sovereign council. Tell us more about that. Before the event of June the 3rd, parties progressed very quickly but they were not experienced. Number one, they didn't sign anything among what they agreed upon. Number two, they didn't have mandate. Those who were negotiating on behalf of the army, uh, army or on behalf of the civilians, they didn't have mandate by those who sent them to the negotiation. Three, they didn't have testimony. Nobody has, has been present because I was in Khartoum, but at that time I refused to be facilitator and mediator because in my belief, mediator or facilitator should not impose himself. He should be chosen by the parties. And I was not chosen by the party. I was sent by African Union. So I was waiting. They adopt me. They approve me. They take me as their mediator and so on. So during that period, they diverged basically on the Sovereign Council. 
When I discussed with each one separately, I find that there is a possibility. And I invented the formula of 7 plus 7 plus 1. I will respond to you as I responded to the Prime Minister of Ethiopia when he asked me in our first meeting in the morning when he arrived, why 7 plus 7 plus 1? The formula I invented was a formula called equality with majority to civilian. The paradox was obvious. That is why immediately when I exposed it to any one of them, they said, how it can be equality with majority to civilian? That is why I said, we choose seven from civilian, seven from military, and we choose by a common agreement, one person who is civilian. In fact, it doesn't strengthen civilian camp because he is in between, and he doesn't strengthen the military camp because he is half for this and half for this. But civilian, the number of civilian will be higher than military. Later on, the parties reduce it to reduce fees to five, five plus one. No matter, that the concept remained the same. And that was agreed upon and it was adopted by uh, all parties later on. You know, and, and in carrying out this work, Professor, you weren't alone, you know, because so often the resolution of conflicts suffer from having competing mediators, you know. And in the first episode of this podcast, the BBC's Lise Doucette quoted Kofi Annan as saying, there must be only one mediator and we have to have a coherent strategy and I will lead that strategy so we have one voice. You know, what do you make of that given that you ended up working in Sudan together with another mediator from, from Ethiopia? At the beginning, I came alone. I was working for 45 days alone. That is the whole period of maturation, of ripening the process of mediation. And then, the Prime Minister of Ethiopia came, and I have had with him a very, very interesting exchange and uh, communality in opinion and approach. At the end of my discussion with him, uh, I have had three discussions with him the same day because he spent, I think, six, six or seven hours in Sudan, in Khartoum. I asked him to, he asked me, how can I support you? I said, you have to appoint someone who should remain with me and to strengthen me because I am alone. He told me, who? Do you have any idea about the profile? I say very shortly, very quickly, three features. Number one, he should be truthful man. The one who lies cannot work with me. Number two, he should be really not talkative. A man who is talkative cannot work with me. And thirdly, he should master Arabic. Facilitator, mediator should master the language and uh, many, many other things of the, the people you are dealing with. So he told me, his conclusion was, I know who I will appoint to. And he appointed uh, two hours after Mr. Darir, Mahmoud Darir, and he was right. He was a very competent man, very wise and very thankful. Well, okay, we have had some little Difficulty at the beginning, but uh, very, very quickly we settled them and we worked as well. And for those who were outside of the negotiating room, but who cared deeply about the outcome, you know, you've said in the past that you used an, an army of journalists, uh, women, civil society in Khartoum, every means available to you to exert pressure on the parties. And, you know, some people say mediation is a bit like playing, uh, being a conductor in an orchestra. 
Um, so, you know, if that's the case, tell me about the music that you asked them to play. If you want one day to mediate, you have to know that you are nothing yourself. That you are nothing without others. As long as you think that you know everything, you are able to do everything yourself. You don't need others. You can't do it without them or sometimes against them. Be sure that you will fail completely. We have many arrogant mediators who fail because they were arrogant. They were pretentious. We need every will, goodwill who can bring even tiny contributions. Number one, of course, international community, including the five member, permanent member of Security Council and other ambassadors from Norway, from Spain, from New Zealand. Let us call it the block of Western and the block of African ambassadors and the block of Arab ambassadors. So we use them and they helped us a lot. That is one channel. The second channel that we use is a national mediators. And this is also in accordance, not only on the pragmatism of mediation, but also with the African Union principle, because African Union principles say that every people should solve himself his problem and his crisis. So we rely on the national mediators to help. That was our second tools. We also ask it, I ask a journalist, for example, to be another tool because, you know, journalism, media are very, very dangerous in conflict. They can destroy you. So I transform this potential negative factor in a very, very positive factor. So they were my channel, not toward the public opinion, but toward the parties themselves. They have their friend, they have their connection, etc., etc. And I can emphasize here that in these revolutions and in these mediations, and more likely for the future of this country, women played in the revolution and for the mediation really a crucial role. That is why I was always developing a strong plea in their favor. And I think that everybody who wants a positive future in Sudan should focus on the necessity to improve the statute of uh, Sudanese women. So you, you have this coalition, in a way, of people who are sort of working towards the cause of peace. And, you know, you make very rapid progress, actually, because, you know, by, by early July, you have a verbal deal between the, the military and the forces of freedom and change alliance, the, the revolutionaries. On the 17th of July, you have a political agreement and, and on the 4th of August, the draft constitutional declaration is signed, which is a very rapid pace for a mediator. You know, what were the tough issues you had to work through at the last stage to, to get a deal done? There were some last, what I we call some last difficulties. And let me emphasize one point, which is extremely important in the technicalities of mediation. One difficulty arises at the beginning of the, at the starting point of the mediation process. They are nothing. They are not dangerous. Because you are still at the zero level. 
So you have you have time you, to, 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 to solve. You don't have anything that you have built which can be threatened to be collapsing. But one difficulty arises at the end of the process that makes the facilitator of mediation very worried because you have something that you can lose <laughs> and you have used already all your weapon, all your tool. You didn't have, you didn't keep anything in your pocket. So you, you, you are disarmed, completely disarmed. So nothing can worry the mediator than the last difficulty. Remember that. That is a very, very good lesson for mediator in the, in, in the future. When, for example, a delegation from revolutionary armed group met in Addis Ababa while I was in Khartoum. So my fear was that those parties were starting a new process, which may be a process in the process, and that could have killed completely our progress in Khartoum upon the constitutional decree. That is why I have to come to Addis and to try to facilitate their discussion, to speed them, to not create for us a new process in the process. It's an interesting role for a mediator to, to work almost on those internal issues within one negotiating party. I'd like to ask you, Professor, about that moment when you know, you've overcome all of those challenges and that final agreement is reached, that constitutional declaration is signed. Did you allow yourself a moment to celebrate? <laughs> yes. When you reach after the hell, the garden of paradise, which is the agreement, how cannot you be proud of yourself, happy, and so on? After all, we are a human being. We have feeling, we have sentiment, we have proudness, we have honor. We have also interest, because if you are a successful mediator, it is not bad for yourself and your future and your career. I cannot neglect that. Let us be honest. It, it, it was very, very important for me. And that is why when I received uh, the award from uh, the head of uh, military council, yes, I was very, very proud. That was one of my most beautiful moments when they brought me on their shoulder during, in the street, uh, singing, etc., etc. When they brought me to a marriage, a wedding also, and it was among hundreds and hundreds of people. It was the world before COVID-19, so it was very, very beautiful. The only thing which pleases to me when... They were bringing me on their shoulder, hundreds of young people. One of them said, oh, be careful about the old man, this old man. <laughs> you didn't like being described in that way. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, nobody wanted to be as an old man. They said, they said, oh, guys, take care about the sheikh. Sheikh in Arabic meaning the old man. Well, lucky that they did take care and, and you, you survived the experience. Professor, I'd like to, to take a step back and, and talk about some of the, the lessons uh, from Sudan, some of which you've described already, uh, but also from your mediation work elsewhere, because I think while many people would consider last year's agreement in Sudan as a success, I'd like to ask you whether you think that anyone was left disappointed 
by the agreement. And I'm thinking particularly of of women who you said, you know, were, were the backbone of the revolution, you know, by some accounts making 70% of the sort of up of the protesters on the on the streets. And, you know, those who might may wonder why only two women are, are represented on the sovereign council. So what would you say to that? I think uh, a woman didn't get what it is fair. Two among uh, 11 and four among 20 ministers. It is not nothing in an Islamic country where it is, which is coming from 30 years of uh, Islamist power, etc., etc. But it doesn't correspond at all to the role, the role that, that they played in the revolutions and their number in the populations and the awareness among Sudanese women. It is amazing. They have a very high level of awareness. So the, 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 the agreement, if you consider any provision, any fundamental and crucial provision of it, it was a huge progress, but it contains also its own setback. As a mediator, you want to reach something which brings you from chaos and killing and disaster to a peace and to stop killing and to stop uh, to, to to make the country on the track of uh, something workable that is good but it is not perfect at all and you know it, it's interesting because it raises a broader question about the role of the mediator and you know you 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 say that that lack of representation is not fair in your words you know but how far do you think a mediator can go in imposing a solution on the parties for something that they might consider unfair. Don't say this word again. Mediator can't impose, and he shouldn't impose. Mediator suggests. Mediator orients. Mediator lead. Mediator raise awareness among parties to show each one that he will win through agreement better than disagreement. And that the multilateral solution is always better than unilateral solution. That is the role of the mediator. I'd like to, to ask you about one of your first experiences in diplomacy in the Burundian peace process where you met the great Nelson Mandela. You know, what did you learn from him? And is it true that he called you a, a spoiled child? Yes, one, once. He said that once. And I have the photo with him where he told me that he was laughing. Mandela, I can tell you, is almost half of God. I am a believer. I believe in Allah. But Mandela, you cannot sit with him without being deeply influenced. What I have learned from him is that whatever the level of divergence and hatred and lack of acceptance of others or disrespect for others, there is a ground which can be made common between parties. No matter if one of party kill, devastate, tortured, rape, it remains an actor. It remains a parties. Without it, peace cannot be reached. This plea to transcend what he called the fragility of human being, which is 
selfishness, the lack of capability of forgiveness, and the spirit against the spirit of revenge, that is really something that I have learned deeply and more likely forever from Mandela. Of course, he was very, 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 uh, very nice and when he laughed about life, about uh, Joyce, about uh, singing, about everything. That is why he called me spoiled boy. Why did he call you spoiled boy? <laughs> because I said what I want for, to say for anybody, including himself. You know, people were afraid of him because his prestiges and so on. Me, I was laughing with him. He called me, oh yeah, spoiled boy. <laughs> Well, I suppose better be to be called a spoiled boy than an old man. Is that right? <laughs> that time I was, it was great to tell me spoiled boy, but this time stop to tease me why by telling you that I am an old man. <laughs> Mohammed El Hassan Labat, thank you for being my guest in the Mediator Studio. Thank you very much, Adam. That was Mohammed El Hassan Labat in the Mediator Studio an Oslo Forum podcast brought to you by the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and please do recommend it to a friend. You can find other episodes at osloforum.org where you can read more about the forum itself and you can continue the conversation with me on Twitter at Adam Talks Peace. If you want to learn more about Professor Labat and his work, his recent book is Sudan Chemin de Paix, Sudan Path of Peace, and I'd encourage you to pick it up. That's all from me, Adam Cooper. Thank you for listening.